Hello and welcome to Slightly Drunk and Extremely Online. I'm Colin Schulz, here today, Mike Hanrahan, Carl Vernon. Today we're going to talk about the subject that is on everyone's minds, on everyone's lips, blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. We'll get right into it quickly, but first, Tito's and fresh squeezed grapefruit juice and a little bit of Pellegrino on my end. Mike, what do you got? Uh, I have a glass of mezcal. Very nice. And Carl, you are not drinking today because you have to drive after this. That is responsible behavior. We strongly encourage that yeah. for all of our listeners. If you're driving right now, please, please don't drink along with us. Okay, so just to kick it off, Carl, can you give us a, a short tech explanation of what on earth all these coins are uh, as possible? I know it's pretty complicated, easy to get into the weeds, but for those people who do not understand cryptocurrency in the slightest bit, maybe give like a brief overview, high level. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to boil down. Uh, cryptocurrency is essentially, uh, it's a currency, it, it's, it's money that exists on a blockchain in most cases exists on a blockchain and it's based on cryptography and, and algorithms to verify transactions and such. And to, to mine the currency, you solve a cryptographic sequence, a time sequence, which generates the, the cash and then it can be sent and that's tracked on a distributed ledger that's decentralized. And I'm sure if you didn't understand Bitcoin before, you probably still don't understand it with that explanation. <laughs> so. It's people who are using their computers, and in the case of most cryptocurrency, it's the most efficient part of the computer that they can use for it is their graphics card because of the way that these cryptographic, meaning sort of like uh, mathematical puzzles are laid out, your graphics card ended up being the most efficient way to solve these problems. So it's all these people trying to solve the same problem or problems, plural, simultaneously, and... When it gets solved to a certain point, one of these coins, whether it's Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, all these other various types of coins are created. And each creator of a coin determines the quantity of those coins, the difficulty of the problems, and it's all sort of mathematically generated. Is that, is that a fair assessment, Carl? I mean, there's a lot of issues with what you just said, but it's basically correct. <laughs> it's basically yeah. correct. Maybe not super technically. And, and Mike, you had some interesting thoughts on sort of the genesis of this movement towards cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. So so I guess what I was just saying offline is, you know, the, the movement in various online, you know, I think I use the term anarchist and that's maybe unfair, but communities to have some kind of non-governmental backed currency is old. It's much older than Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I think, came out in like 2008. Um, but they all... Uh, ran into this thing called the double spend problem, which is where if you think about sort of a traditional web server, you know, if you don't have a distributed ledger, you know, you, you run into this issue where if I have dollars on my machine, I can spend them on one website and then spend them on another website. And as long as I can execute that faster than those two can update with the central server, then I have infinite money. Right. And it's what, like bouncing what, checks, basically, like kind right. of checks. In exactly. And, and what Bitcoin solved with the blockchain process is the act of spending it is also the act of updating the list of held currency everywhere in the world. So you, you get this issue where as soon as you have spent the money, everyone else is aware, not who has done what, but, but is aware that you no longer have that currency to spend at another place. 
So that, that's what initially got it moving is it solved a technical problem and then it kind of gained momentum from there. And this has created other issues that people are concerned about, which we can, which we definitely don't need to go too in depth into right now about the transaction limitations of Bitcoin, where you can only transact a certain number of Bitcoin transfers, buying, selling, for lack of better terms, at a time because the network is limited by how quickly it can update or how it's designed to update. So there's so Bitcoin was the first one. Now there's all these additional coins. There's hundreds, thousands of them. But what's interesting about the genesis of a lot of these coins is that you can go and find the software, find the algorithms, find the code, I guess I should say. I'm probably using more terms that are incorrect and Carl's gritting his teeth over there. True. Uh, <laughs> you can... You can create a coin fairly easily. But if you create a coin in a vacuum, you know, who's going to mine it? Who's going to spend it? So the genesis of a lot of coins when there was this craze back when Bitcoin, I don't know, a couple of years ago when it hit, you know, $400, $500, almost $900 at one point was all these people on Reddit were making their own coins. And they and the goal of those coins was to get them traded on these exchanges because then it actually became worth something. Once you could exchange your coin, whether it was Coinye, which is a, a, a pun on Kanye West, or Mooncoin or Dogecoin or any of these other ones. Once you could get them on an actual exchange, that was when it became worth something. So people would mine their own coins heavily and then release them into the open marketplace using Reddit as a megaphone or using um, various other online forums as a megaphone to get a lot of other people to start mining it. And then the hope was that they would get it listed on one of these exchanges, meaning that you could now trade Collins coin for Bitcoin, which gave it intrinsic value. And maybe that value was like a tenth of a penny. But if you had enough of it, it started to add up. So that was that created these communities all sprung up around the need to have these exchanges and marketplaces where you could turn what was essentially junk coin into Bitcoin. Right. I mean, Carl, you can probably expand a little bit on that since you were a bit more familiar with those communities. Right. So there was a crazy time because the code for Bitcoin was, is open source. And Litecoin uh, followed suit and many of these other coins were simply someone downloading the open source, changing very simple parameters and re-uploading it with a different logo uh, and, and compiling it. And especially on Bitcoin Talk, which was the big central forum for it, you would see there are so many of these new coins coming out. They had to make new forums and new containment boards for it. And it turned into like a gold rush because you could, at one point, you could pay an exchange to list your coin. And everyone knew as soon as a coin to the exchange, it would, it would pump. And then as soon as it pumped up a couple, a couple Satoshis or when it had any value, anyone who had any of it, who had held it, the, who had pre-mined it, the, the person who had invented this thing, who had compiled it first, would just dump all their coins into the market. And that was sort of the sink or swim. If, if you could survive the initial pump and dump of your coin, then suddenly you had something that had value that was worth, worth maybe holding on to or the long play. But a great, great many of them never made it past that point. Keep in mind, I mean, this was all anonymous. Like no one really knew who was behind these coins. There were countless coins, you know, created under false pretenses. I mean, many of the, you know, well, so that leads me into the explanation for something that you just mentioned. So Satoshis um, is a unit sort of agreed upon within the community, I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's based on the pseudonym for the person who created Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, who... No one actually knows who this guy is, I don't think. Like, have they finally unearthed him? I don't think. They keep thinking they have, and then they actually haven't. 
I don't think anyone knows who he is or who they are. It could be, I don't know. I don't want to gender Satoshi. <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll try to keep the, the podcast as, as gender friendly as possible. So that was the early on, that was the late 2000s to early 2010s was this, these online communities, these Reddit boards, and like you said, these coin forums where everyone was sort of creating these things. And another thing they did was offer bonuses um, to encourage people to mine. I remember that you yourself had hit some big bonus on one of the coins that you were mining back when you and I were screwing around with this, and it ended up paying off pretty big. Right. So there is this coin. Um, and the algorithm was, you know, if you found uh, every 10th block was worth 10 million coins. So you mine a thousand, mine a thousand. And if you're lucky enough, you hit this $10 million block. And I managed to, to hit one with my one lowly GPU sitting in my office. So I got up in the morning and I checked my wallet and it was, it was huge. And this made me the top in the top three owners of this coin. Yeah, you're big time. I was rolling in it. <laughs> and, and was that was was this one of the coins that was convertible to a meaningful thing or? Well, that was sort of the thing. So all of a sudden now I care a lot whether this thing gets listed on an exchange. So I became very active on the forums and, and getting people involved and, and making social media posts and harassing you know people to vote and get this thing listed on an exchange because uh, I definitely want to sell this for money, right? And it did eventually, right? Didn't, or did you did. trade that off off exchange? It, well, initially, the uh, the actual person who had invented the coin had messaged me and said, you know, I didn't pre-mine enough of it. I don't have enough of this coin. So I'll buy it off you before it hits the exchange. So this was a, a Skype transaction, which is very sketchy, <laughs> to say the least. You know, it's a, there's no, there's no um, escrow involved. There's nothing saying, you know, who sends first, right? So um, I actually sold half of the stash off. Um, and then I managed to hit another block as well. So uh, I doubled down on, on what I had, sold him some, and then I did the very dishonorable thing when I hit the exchange of, of just just absolutely destroying the exchange. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I dumped all my coins. I took my money. Just pushed the price way down. I got out. So while we're talking about buying and selling this stuff, so Mike, maybe you can chime in a little bit on on how this is very different from a standard financial transaction and, and why that's there's all these banks getting in on this stuff now there's a lot of traditional um, investors and or traditional sort of financial people in the orbit of this they're starting to create these futures contracts which is something that maybe we could touch on as, as part of this explanation but like this is not a standard financial transaction because it's not really backed by anything other than like just this sort of agreed upon it's a hard question. Uh, mm -hmm. How is it not a standard financial transact? Kind of in every conceivable way. So <laughs> I guess this is so hard. So I, I guess the, there's a couple questions that the sort of traditional finance community is facing all at once. You know, why, why they care about Bitcoin, maybe to start there. And, and the reason I'm for my specificity is they care about Bitcoin specifically and, and the larger phenomenon of cryptocurrencies, I would say, basically not at all. Um, and the reason for that is that Bitcoin is up 15,000% in a year and is now, you know, denominated in a five digit US dollar number and the others are not. Right. And it is that alone that is driving their interest in it. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that's separate from blockchain as a technology, which may or may not get used as, you know, things like settlement for derivatives. Whether or not that happens, it will be probably on the technological merits and nothing else. Sure. That's probably not that interesting. No. But the way that traditional finance has gotten involved in it. So there are a couple 
of hedge funds that started, I would say, in the large about a, about a year ago, getting involved with this. And, and their involvement was, I would say, initially very complicated. And there were sort of two pools. The one pool is sort of populated you know, most notably by the the Winklevoss twins, who you would know if you saw the move by Facebook. So they got involved, I think about a year and a half ago, because they wanted to create uh, an ETF, which is an electronically traded fund, where they would be, so like there's a gold ETF, there's actually several gold ETFs, um, and they wanted to create the equivalent for Bitcoin. And to do that, they need to own a lot of it. So they own a lot of it. And the other group is there were uh, hedge funds that were sort of getting into it for prop trading, who they just wanted to own it. And, you know, make money on its price going up or down, kind of like a traditional hedge fund could own all sorts of assets. And what was interesting about it back then was that there were then and are now various Bitcoin exchanges where, you know, retail investors can go in and spend dollars and buy Bitcoins or Ethereum or what have you. And and those are, are, I would say, by and large, not the avenue they use to do that because the exchange rates on those tend to be very expensive. Uh, So like Coinbase right now, which is the I don't know if it's the most it's, popular, but it's yeah. the one that, that gets the, the most headlines. Um, so Coinbase charges a 7% exchange fee uh, in both directions. So if you're buying Bitcoin, they take 7%. And if you're selling Bitcoin, they take 7%. And That's so crazy. It's for easy math. Crazy by finance it's standards. Crazy. Like, so if you, if you capture a 30% move, so like let's say I take $10,000 and say I'm going to buy $10,000 of Bitcoin, and then it goes up to $13,000, and I say, wow, I've made 30%, I'm going to sell you know, from that transaction, I have only captured 10% of movement, right? Because I've, my exchange fee has taken so much of it. Right. So so these funds initially got in through over-the-counter transactions, kind of like what Carl was describing. Like they just well, we, bought we call a them, bunch off of right. a dude somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So we call them over-the-counter transactions. So, but so normally when you're buying them, as I understand it, when they're buying them in huge quantities, they're actually buying them from the miners themselves. Right. Um, and these Bitcoin mining operations are now pretty much industrial. Uh, and my understanding of them is they're largely tapping illegally into Chinese hydropower because they're getting the power for nice. free. Um, you know there was going to be some some Chinese yeah. connections here. Well, the interesting pivot in Bitcoin is at some point the, uh, the cryptographic problems that were being released to mine new ones got too complex for traditional GPUs. And then got too complex for GPUs at all, and now can only really be mined by spe- like specialty dedicated hardware with any kind of efficiency. So these people, you know, all over the world, you know, basically turned into electrical arbitrage, right? Like, where can I get a huge block of servers plugged into cheap power that I can run twenty four seven in a warehouse, right? And so your options are like hydroelectric, you know, maybe like Iceland if you can get into like geothermal power somehow. I don't know if you have like a really reliable wind farm, and that's probably it, <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, but anyway, so so these so these miners who who crank out tons and tons of bitcoins, I, I think naturally are kind of wary of pushing the exchange rate down. So they do, you know, when they need to, if they need to sell to like pay their power bill, for instance, if they have one, you know, they're incentivized to do it over the counter because it doesn't hit the exchange right. rate, right? And what um, just just to explain down. for those non finance people, the fear is that. One of the, I guess, paradoxes of owning Bitcoin is that if you own a lot and you suddenly want to cash out, the fact that you're, do- if you do it over an exchange, it's going to drop, it's going to drop the value of your Bitcoin almost before you can finish selling all your Bitcoin if you have a lot of them. Absolutely. So especially nowadays that it's perceived as being very valuable, 
you know, I think back two or three years ago, you know, it moved a lot, but it was moving a lot in, in small dollar amounts, um, even if the percentage was pretty big. Nowadays, you know, Bitcoin is so illiquid that like yesterday, for instance, when we saw a, a new high watermark for the for the coin, you know, it was ticking up by $1,000 with each coin sold. <laughs> um, and, you know, none of these exchanges are releasing total trading volume, but I would guess that their total volume on a day is is like in the low double digits. Right. right? Probably 10 coins trade hands on a day. Right. Just and, to further confuse matters, yeah, well, it's also possible to sell small portions of a coin, which is what makes this all very exciting because you can have like it is, one one hundredth of a Bitcoin or whatever. Right. And because the, uh, the, the other confusing aspect of this is that because the exchange fees are so high and there are more than one... There's there's more than one exchanging platform. Um, you can't necessarily arbitrage between them. So the uh, the cost of Bitcoin on Coinbase and the cost on Bitstamp, which is another one, or Bitfinex, which is another one, um, will at times diverge from each other pretty radically. Right. Mm-hmm. So at one point yesterday, Coinbase had one change hands at nineteen thousand dollars, while another one had it at fifteen thousand dollars. Right. You know, if you're quick enough, you can move from one to the other, but the cost of doing that. Uh, from the exchange fees might might eat your incentive to 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 make the trade. So anyway, so so you so you'd ask me about the futures contract. So on Sunday, this thing called the CBOE, which is the Chicago Board Options Exchange, is starting to clear Bitcoin futures, which means that um, you can enter into a contract with a with a counterparty to 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 buy or sell them bitcoins at a date in the future. And I, I think they're doing three month contracts initially, <laughs> which is um, which is like might as well be ten years which is in Bitcoin. Ludicrous. Yeah. Right, because you know we saw a forty percent move in a day, probably fifteen times this year. You know, I'm, I'm making that number up, but you know, we've seen it a lot. You know, we saw one yesterday. It was by no means the first, and so that will make it, in my estimation, uh, extremely hard to contract for. And so there's there, there's sort of two different theories on what happens, and, and and part of what muddies this is that the Bitcoin futures are going to be cash settled which means that the people holding them holding the futures are not necessarily exposed to the the commodity itself right if you know if you buy an oil future and your oil future goes to expiry you know someone gives you a barrel of oil because they had a barrel of oil whereas if your bitcoin future goes to expiry they give you dollars and so one of the one of the theories here is that these futures contracts will pretty rapidly diverge from the underlying product because there's no means for you know, someone heavily shorting the futures to actually hit the price of the commodity. Right. Yeah. Because um, if it swings, I mean, I think what you're, you're saying, if I understand it correctly, is that these swings can make it incredibly difficult to predict this stuff. And if people decide to take advantage of these wild swings and, you know, they're going to have to have some sort of measures in place to prevent people from just saying, oh, God, it just went up 700%. Now give me my Bitcoin or my cash equivalent of Bitcoin, right? Is that, is that sort of... Yeah, I think that... Well, so, so here's an example. So let's say, that, let's say that wasn't true, right? And they were, you know, in the, and to, to trade the Bitcoin futures, you have to have exposure to the commodity. So, you know, if, if the futures contract for three months out is, say, Bitcoin at $50,000, and today it trades at $10,000, I am highly incentivized to sell those futures contracts and buy Bitcoin today, and then I'm just paid to wait, Okay. right? Because if I buy, basically, I would make that trade as often as I have $10,000 to do it. And then, you know, three months from now, I give them to someone and they give me $50,000 for Bitcoin. And I made forty grand in three months with very little exposure, right? 
but the action of me doing that will increase the price today, right? And so, so the the two things will will sort of they they will come into parity with one another at, at some point, right? Not equal, but you know there will be some 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 risk discount. But the you know the app the option of of me selling the futures contract will increase today's price, right? Okay. Um, because they're not tied, that's not necessarily true this way. To just do a quick pivot, speaking on actual ownership of Bitcoin. Carl, um, before we close it out, I want to talk to you a little bit because I know that you've been following a lot of these forums. So we have sort of the finance side of it. We have the a little bit of the origin story. But now there are all these people, these sort of random internet people who find themselves sitting on these giant stashes of Bitcoin, um, at least giant to them. I mean, some of these are kids, basically, you know, 20-year-old kids, 18-year-old kids. Mm. And they're wondering, what the hell do I do now? Like, I'm theoretically a millionaire, some of these guys. And I think the easiest uh, go-to sort of stereotype from someone in my perspective is, oh my God, they're going to like try to cash it out in super shady ways, like get arrested or like evade taxes or whatever. But what you've been saying is that a lot of these people are actually on forums offering almost like financial counseling to one another and trying to say like, hey, I want to do this in a responsible way. Or like, how do I do this? Like, what do I do now? Like, what's the best way to work and it's it's interesting that these communities have who have who were caught up in this hysteria for so long that there has been this turn I think to all right now we we did something that was good for us personally so what do we do now you know yeah it's interesting because i think a lot of these people are it's new to them to have this sort of wealth is new to them and they they are suddenly aware that this isn't this isn't realized wealth owning a bitcoin is fantastic but until you have that cash in your account it's sort of just a theoretical thing that you have. So they tend to be very careful. But how do I how do I cash this out? How do I not get arrested doing this? And once I have it cashed out, how do I not have it taken away from me? And I think that there's there's a lot of the the, the, the meme of you know there's a, a 19 year old nerd out there in his basement with millions of dollars, and that's not necessarily how it also tends to be. It tends to be a lot of you know, kids don't have this money to invest in in the first place. You know, they might have taken $10, might have 0.1 Bitcoins, they might have, but even 0.1 Bitcoins, that's 1600 bucks into a lot of people. A lot of people, that's a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of people who are who are broke, whose parents are broke, and they have this money, and they're very careful. They ask a lot of these questions, you know, how how do I cash this out without, without paying tax? And everyone says, hey, whoa, whoa, don't do that. If you want to, you need to pay your tax because you're going to get caught, you're going to get busted, and you can get wow. anything. And they say, okay, that, okay, well, that's, that's surprisingly sane. Well, I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's sane, but I think the greed is less there because this isn't, um, you know, the Panama Papers. This isn't rich people with uh, lawyers at their disposal figuring out ways to launder money that, that they can pat themselves on the back for later as they buy more yachts. This is, you know, I just want to buy my first, my first uh, car. I want to be able to move out of my, my mom's basement into a very nice basement of my own. <laughs> it's not, it's not <laughs> living very, the dream. Right. And that, that to them is, you know, I can have all the chicken tenders I want. Wow. That's, that's all they, they're aiming low. Well, part of it, hopefully, is also the reality that, you know, in, in their move towards legitimacy, all of these major Bitcoin exchanges now comply, at least largely comply with money laundering laws. Right. So if you transact in larger than $10,000 amounts, they report you to the IRS. So I, right. I would hope and, they would and now that, uh, make an effort to pay their capital Now that the value standards. of Bitcoin is over $10,000, that makes it really interesting because if you want to sell, I mean, I suppose you could still sell partial, but that's just... Yeah, it turns into probably a bit of a nightmare. And obviously the IRS is on the lookout for that. Just to wrap it up, I know um, we're com- coming towards the end and, and Carl's got to go drive somewhere. This is our first primer of what I'm sure will be an ongoing series as the 
world and especially America is completely obsessed with Bitcoin. I have had complete strangers at bars try to explain blockchain to me as I created excuses to leave. It is definitely on everyone's lips at the moment. We'll talk more about it, but I hope that we've been able to cover some of the basics, talk a little bit about some of the groups and the interesting sort of undercurrents that have sprung up around this. And maybe maybe, maybe we did some good today, boys. I don't know. <laughs> I think that if anyone if anyone is curious about it and this conversation gets you more curious, I would urge you to go and read and understand what it is. Yes. It's something that's worth reading about because I think it's an interesting cultural phenomenon. I don't think any expert, I don't think, I think very few people out there have any idea what's going to happen with this. And that's, it's kind of fun when all the finance people and math people and pundits and whatever are all just sort of along for the ride. Anyhow, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, as always, you know, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. Take care.